We mentioned in our announcements this morning our friends and family day. And for several months now, we've been talking about that. We've been announcing it. We've been encouraging you to pray for it. It's an annual event. We've had it for some 15 years or more. It is something to kind of mark the official end of summer vacation. It's a time to retool and to push the reset button, if you will, as many in our day and time talk about. It's a time for us to have a reason to invite friends and family to join us for worship, to invite those that maybe over the years have become careless in their relationship to God to come and join us for worship. It's a time that we have a way to have a springboard to new beginnings. In case you aren't aware of it, in case you've been living a Rip Van Winkle type of existence, it's only two weeks away. The Apostle Paul addressed the idea of new beginnings, of pushing the reset button, if you will, in our text this morning in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Paul says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting the things that are behind and reaching forth to the things that are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let's be honest. Looking back to the past is something that every one of us does from one time to the next in one form or another. But regardless of how we look back to the past, Folks, we cannot live in the past. And we can't spend our entire life looking back. There was that great baseball player, Satchel Paige, who said, Don't look back. Something might be gaining on you. When I think about looking to the past, and I think about looking back, I think about a story I read one time about a class of third graders. And it was picture day at school, and this class of third graders had just had their class photograph made. And the teachers encouraging them to take the order form home and encourage their parents to order one of the group photographs of the entire class. She said, one of these days, children, you'll look forward to seeing this photograph of you as third graders, and you'll be able to say, oh, look, there's... Jennifer, she's an attorney now. Oh, there's Michael. He's a doctor. And a voice in the back of the room said, and there's the teacher. She's dead. We can't look back to the past as that golden age that can never be duplicated. We can't look back on the negatives in the past. We can't look back on the bad things that have happened in the past and have a pity party and wallow in self-pity. Now you think about Paul. Think about the man that wrote our text. Forgetting the things that are behind, reaching forth to those things that are before. If Paul had allowed himself to live in the past, 
and look upon all the negatives in his past. The burden and guilt of sin would have crippled this great man. That's why he said, forgetting the things that are behind. Paul had a lot in his past. Paul had a shaky and sordid past. He had persecuted the church. He had used his authority as a big shot in the Jewish religion to persecute Christians. To hunt them down, put them in chains and kill them. By his own admission, Paul said, I am chief of sinners. This man, Paul, he could have walked around the rest of his life with a tremendous burden of guilt. Paul could have allowed his guilt to cripple him. And if he had done that, he would have never become the great apostle that we revere so much today. So Paul said, forgetting those things which are behind. Beloved, the past is something all of us need to learn to let go of. The past is something that all of us need to turn loose of. Have we had failures in the past? (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I don't know about you, but I have. We've had failures in the past as individuals. We've had failures in the past as a congregation. There have been those who, for one reason or another, have left us over the years. Those that no longer had a desire to be part of our church family. Those who, for whatever reason, had no longer had a desire to be part of our fellowship. Do we know why? Not really. You see, when people decide to leave the church, they rarely tell you the real reason. Now, they'll tell somebody at the beauty shop, Or they'll tell one of their co-workers. Or they'll tell their next door neighbor or their back fence neighbor why they left the church. And it'll eventually get back to you why they left the church. But if you ask them, oh no, everything's fine. But then you hear what they're telling the whole world about the church. I don't dwell on it. In fact, I can't even remember any specifics, but I will tell you this. There have been folks over the past half century, a little over half century that I've been doing this, that have called me everything but a child of God at one time or another. But you know what? I can't even remember who it was or what they said, Leon. Because I want to take Paul's advice literally, forgetting the things that are behind. We've got to turn loose of the past. We've got to turn loose of what's in the background. And we've got to focus our eyes toward the future. We can learn from the past. We can enjoy pleasant memories of the past. But if we are to make progress as individuals, and if we're to do great things for God and make progress as a congregation of God's people, we cannot linger on the past. Because if we think too much about the glory of the past, and we dwell on the glory of the past, and we stay there, and and we have a 
desire and a longing and a wish for those glory days to return, we're not going to be any good in the present and we're not going to be any good in the future. If we choose to live our lives in the past, we're doomed to failure for the future. Because living in the past, even a good past, can taint the future. There are some things that will make life better for us as we face the future. Things that will make life better for us as individuals. Things that will make life better for us as a church. And things that will make sure that as a church, we have a glorious, beautiful future. We need a positive outlook toward life. A positive outlook on life is going to help us have a bright future as individuals. It will help us have a bright future as a church. Like the story I read about the little boy one time. You remember when we were children? A little harder for to remember that far back for some than it is others. But you remember when you were children, we were children and we'd be at school and they'd choose up teams to play baseball at school. I remember those days. They always fought over whose team I was going to be on. They'd start choosing people and they'd get down at the end and they'd say, you can have Perkins. We had him last time. Oh, no, you got him this time. We had him last time. They fought over me. But I remember the little boy. Did you ever go out in the yard with a baseball and a bat and you'd throw the ball up and hit it? little boy goes out in the yard one day and he's got his ball in one hand, his bat in the other. Here comes the world's greatest baseball player, the greatest hitter the world's ever known. He throws the ball up and he missed. He did it a second time and a third time. He struck himself out. And after he struck himself out, he said, here's the world's greatest pitcher of all time striking out another batter. That's the kind of attitude we've got to have. We've got to have that positive mental attitude. Just like that boy with his bat. Our reaction to the events of life, our reaction to what life brings to us, is going to determine whether we are victorious or whether we come out defeated. What would it take? What would it take? What would have to happen for us to feel really positive really good about life. I remember back in the days when I was selling life insurance and they would have all these courses we would have to go to. And one of those courses always has had said, in order to get one appointment, you have to make ten calls. And out of ten calls, you'll get one appointment. I remember the story about the old boy that had made nine phone calls, got nine Knows, And he was so excited. He said, I've got nine no's. I'm going to get a yes on this next call. It's kind of like the guy that walked into work one morning. And he walked into work. He was walking on air. He was just on cloud nine. He was the happiest man that you'd ever seen. And he walked up and went to his desk. And the guy that sat at the next desk looked at him and said, Sam, what in the world's gotten into you? Why are you so happy this morning? He said, well, you remember Mary Ann? He said, yeah, Mary Ann's that girl you've been asking out so often. He said, yep. Well, she's going to go out with me. All i got to do is ask her one more time. 
He said, really? She's going to have... He said, yep, I asked her out yesterday, and she said, for the last time, no. We've got to have that kind of positive mental outlook on life. I've known people, you have too, that I don't think they ever had a positive thought in their life. And I pity people that don't think positively. I pity people that live among the negatives. I pity people that I think never had a positive thought about anything in their entire life. Look at Paul's condition when he wrote those words. He said, forgetting the things that are behind and reaching forth to those things that are before, I press toward the prize for the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. This is one of those prison epistles that we've been talking about in our Sunday morning Bible class. Paul was in prison. He was chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And he says, forgetting what's behind and pressing on to what's before, I press toward the prize of the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Life at the point Paul wrote that letter, life is not exactly coming up all roses for him. But yet he writes those extremely positive words because he's reaching for something. He has a goal in mind, and that goal is eternal life with Jesus Christ. His goal is heaven. Write this down. There will be disappointments in life. But every day brings us closer to the time that we can be with Jesus. What the world says about how to feel good and how to feel good about ourselves is different from what the Bible says. The world says for us to feel good about ourselves, we've got to climb that ladder to success. We've got to make a lot of money. We've got to have influential friends. We've got to get lots of awards, lots of sweet gum plaques, and we've got to belong to the right clubs. This book says that we're to feel good about ourselves because God loves us. We're so treasured. We're so valuable. We're so important. God gave His only begotten Son for us, for me. Internalize it. God gave His Son for me. That makes me valuable. Makes you valuable. And you know what? Because of that, we can feel good about ourselves. We need, we must have a positive outlook toward life. And we've got to have a positive attitude toward the church. We've got to realize just how important the church is. Because the church is so important and so valuable that Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, purchased the church with His own blood. Paul says in Ephesians 4 that Christ loved the church and He gave Himself for it. Everything that we have is costly. Everything of value. Our freedom in this country was costly and is costly and remains costly. Freedom is not free. Our forefathers came to this land. They bled for it. They died for it. They knocked down the hills. They smoothed in the valleys. They smoothed over the rough places. 
And they shed their blood for us to live in freedom. The blessings that we enjoy were not just handed to our forefathers on a silver platter. Our salvation, our freedom from the bondage of sin, cost the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And for the church to be great and to build a great church requires sacrifice on our part. Building a great church doesn't come cheap, and building a great church doesn't come easy. It requires effort. We've got to learn to speak positively about the church. To say good things about the church. There is no place. There is no place in a great church for those who would tear down the church. There is no place in a great church to carp and criticize. Sometimes people I've known over the years kind of reminds me of a story they tell on John Wesley. A story you may have heard, but if you have, you're going to hear it again. I don't know how much you know about John Wesley. But John Wesley had a reputation to be a quite spiffy dresser. Back in those days, it was customary men would wear ties that tied in a bow like you, would, like you sometimes tie your shoelaces. Well, Wesley would wear ties that had really long ribbons that would hang down on his ties. Well, one Sunday, Wesley had preached, and after the sermon, a lady came out and she says, Brother Wesley, are you open to some criticism? He said, well, of course. She opened her purse, she took out her scissors and cut the ribbons off of his tie. John Wesley looked at her and he said, Ma'am, are you open to some criticism? She says, But of course. He said, May I borrow your scissors? She said, Absolutely. She handed him her scissors. He said, Now stick out your tongue. Sometimes, in order to build a great church, we need some folks to stick out their tongue. Here's what James said in James chapter 3. It's a rather lengthy reading. It's 12 verses. And I'm going to read it out of Philip's translation. But James would write, Don't aim at adding to the number of teachers, my brothers. I beg you, remember that we who are teachers are going to be judged by a much higher standard. We all make mistakes in all kinds of ways. But the man who can claim that he never says the wrong thing can consider himself perfect. For if he can control his tongue, he can control every other part of his personality. Men control the movements of a large animal like the horse with a tiny bit placed in his mouth. Ships, too, for all their size and momentum they have with a strong wind behind them are controlled by a very small rudder according to the course chosen by the helmsman. The human tongue is physically small, but what tremendous effects it can boast of. A whole forest can be set ablaze by a tiny spark of fire. 
and the tongue is a fire. A whole world of evil. It is set within our bodily members, but it can poison the whole body. It can set the whole of life ablaze, fed with the fires of hell. Beasts, birds, reptiles, and all kinds of sea creatures can be, and in fact are, tamed by man. But no one can tame the human tongue. It's an evil, always liable to break out. And the poison it spreads is deadly. We use the tongue to bless our Lord and Father, and we use the same tongue to curse our fellow man. We are all created in God's likeness. Blessing and cursings come out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers, this is the sort of thing that never ought to happen. Have you ever known a spring to give sweet and bitter water from the same source? Have you ever seen a fig tree with a crop of olives or seen figs growing on a vine? It's just as impossible for salt water to produce fresh. James says we've got to have our tongue under control. We've got to have a positive attitude toward the church. We've got to have a positive outlook on life. And we've got to have a positive attitude toward other people. I think we'd be amazed how many people we might influence for Jesus Christ if we would just treat people the way we should. It's a hard world we live in. Sometimes it's a dog-eat-dog world. And often we don't exercise courtesy. In fact, in today's world with social media as rampant as it is and the anonymity that social media provides, it seems every day people are becoming less and less civil and kind with each other. The church needs to be a place where we can come and be accepted. It needs to be a place we can come and be loved. A place we can come and be encouraged and built up. A place where there are people ready to carry our burdens, not add to our burdens. Jesus laid that principle down more than once. But He laid it down so clearly in Matthew seven twelve, when He said, Whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do you even so to them. People, whether we like it or not, people form their opinion of the church by watching us. There's a story one time about a preacher that moved into a new community. And there in this community was a man who was a hog farmer. And this hog farmer had a very antagonistic attitude toward the church. He was always talking about the hypocrites that existed in the church. He would mention men by name in the church that chased after married women. He'd talk about the biggest gossip in town that belonged to the church. He never had anything good to say about the church. So the preacher went out to see the hog farmer. He didn't want to talk to him about that. He knew that would be pointless. 
But he told the hog farmer, he said, I want to buy a hog from you. An old hog farmer said, well, that's great. He said, just pick you one out. The preacher had grown up as a farmer, and he looked out there, and he saw this sickly-looking hog. Obviously, the run of the litter. And he said, that's the one I want. I want to buy that hog right there. And the farmer told him, he said, well, well, preacher, you don't want that hog. That, that hog's sickly, and it's the run of the litter, and that just wouldn't be a good hog. Why would you want that one? He said, well, I'm just following your example. He said, I'm going to buy that sickly little run of a hog there, and I'm going to tell people all over town that that's the kind of hogs you sell. But, but preacher, i got good hogs, he said, but I'm just following your example. I'm just following the example you set. You condemn the whole church because of a few people that are spiritually stunted within the church. People are going to judge. If you want to judge the church by just a few members that are spiritually stunted, we need to judge your hog farm by the sickliest looking hogs you've produced. Needless to say, it changed that old hog farmer's attitude just a little bit. Write this down. It's on the final example. There are no perfect churches. And there are no perfect Christians. We're all sinners. And folks that don't go to church need to understand they're sinners too. And folks need to understand before time is over on this earth, they need to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they need to start living for Jesus. Those of us who go to church, we need to remember this. People are watching us. It may not seem fair, but we belong to the church and we're held to a higher standard. And we need to make sure that we're not providing someone with an excuse for not going to church. And we're not providing someone with an excuse to not be part of God's family. Now, the question before the house this morning is this. What's the need of your life? Do you need to put the past behind you and become a Christian for the very first time? Or do you need to admit that you've not lived God's kind of life, that Jesus Christ has not been the Lord and Master of all your life, and you need to come and make changes? I don't know what your needs might be. But if we can help you meet those needs, whatever they are, this is your opportunity to come and Give us the opportunity to help you meet your needs as together we stand and while we sing.